Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas, and we are doing Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. You can find me at my street address, lifeovercoffee.com. For those of you who support our ministry, thank you so much for underwriting it. You are the people that permits us to share our resources freely with hundreds of thousands of people every month, and I thank God for you. If you have any questions as a supporting member, you have free access to our private forums. That's what comes with your membership. And so if you want to engage our team, then please jump over to lifeovercoffee.com and then you can ask us any question that's important to you. For the rest of you, well, please just enjoy our resources. They are here for you. And I want to talk about one of the more common things that we struggle with, and that is our pressures of life. Pressure comes, the heat bears down on us. And the point that I want to make here is how the pressures of life expose both our strengths and our weaknesses. The pressures of life, when they happen, they expose things that are outside of our control. And in those moments when we're no longer in control because of the suffering that we are going through, we either rally our souls under the Spirit's power and we persevere, or we come apart at the seams. Now that is a spectrum, and I do believe that I have landed on every point of that spectrum. There have been moments, praise God, when I was able to rally my soul and persevere under the Spirit's power. But there have been some awful moments where it just felt like I was coming apart at the seams. And so the heat that was bearing down on my life, it revealed that weakness in my life. The suffering is the test. In those moments of unexpected challenges, we reveal our functional view of God. We know where we stand with God when the challenges come. Our unwelcome problems become diagnostics that reveal any abiding spiritual deficiencies in our life. Now, nobody's seeking suffering, and I'm not making a case for that. Hello, suffering, come to me. No, But it will happen, and when it does happen, we mustn't miss its purpose because we do want to understand God, and we do want to understand his grander purposes in our trouble, and he wants to teach us critical aspects of the Christian life that will fortify us today while preparing us to help those fellow strugglers that he brings into our paths. It is through your trouble that you have found strength in God. And as you have found strength in God, you have been positioned to help other people to where you benefit, they benefit, and God is glorified. Well, that is one thing that suffering does in our lives. But sometimes when the heat does come, it, it, it does cause us to come apart at the seams. Therefore, what I want to address here over the next few moments is how we think about God when our trials do come. I believe that is the number one thing that we should give consideration to when trouble comes into your life. Think about it. When suffering happens, your first call should be to God. Dear God, 
Why is this happening? What do you want me to learn? How am I to proceed? And so our thoughts about God when pain happens is the most essential thing because the number one relationship in our life is God. And so what we think about God is essential. And so we want to consider that as we think about our trials. There is nothing higher, there is nothing more transcendent than in the infinite, all-powerful God. He is the supreme ruler of our lives and the most effective help when trouble comes. Thus, if our thoughts about God are insufficient, and mine have been at different points of my life, And so the help that I wanted to receive from him was not the best help that I could have received from him because my thoughts about him were improper. And that makes assessing our thoughts about God one of the most important things that we can do, especially when life does not make sense. By the way, if you want to read what I'm sharing with you, I would love for you to do that. Go to lifeovercoffee.com and look for the article that's titled, Three Things to Know When Life Does Not Make Sense. If you find that article, then, well, you can read it, you can watch it, you can listen to it, and that would be fantastic. Three things to know when life does not make sense. Now, the good news is that we can decipher our thoughts about God. Do you know how to decipher your thoughts about God with clarity? All you need is one ingredient. That one ingredient is personal suffering. When the heat bears down on us, we react to that heat. And if you're like me, there is an instinctive impulse to flee. And that makes sense to look for an exit. But that can be a mistake in some cases. To look for an exit, trying to flee the suffering, and we miss what sovereign God wants to teach us in our trouble. He is ready to instruct us, and we're looking to get out of it as quick as we possibly can. In some cases, looking for the exit is not or should not be our first impulse. In other cases, it should. I understand but it can't be 100% of the time because sovereign God wants to instruct us. So when disappointment beckons, the best response should be to discern God's mind in that trouble. What saith he about your troubles? I call it my blessed trouble, and I put that in air quotes because I have learned that disappointment is the passageway to a more profound experience with God and a better life with other people. The formula is like this. If you have a weak relationship with God, you're going to have a weak relationship with other people. And the only way to have a strong relationship with God is to be tested in the crucible of suffering. The Lord first taught me this lesson years ago after someone murdered my oldest brother. It was 1987. After receiving the news of his death, I asked God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? How do you want me to respond to this tragedy? It's not wrong to question God if your motive for questioning God is as a humble learner, a person with a teachable spirit, not the angry person who is bawling their fist up to the heavens and questioning God and questioning God's goodness. 
Well, I wasn't questioning God that way, and I wasn't questioning his goodness. I was questioning him because there was a mystery here that I did not understand at all. My brother's death did not make sense, even though he lived the life of a criminal. It was a tragedy that went beyond my understanding. But I knew that God had a mysterious plan, and I wanted to know what it was. I needed him because he knew more, and he could do more to help walk me through this horrible situation. God did help me to see into the mystery. I could peer into the mystery of the murder, and it made all the difference in how I processed those events. I won't take the time at this point. I have shared in other places all that God did through that season in my life and the wonderful things that he did with some of my family members that came right out of that tragedy that was brought into our lives. When your heart breaks, you will either be God-centered or problem-centered. It's like two doors opening before you, leading down unique pathways of suffering. The God-centered person experiences trust and faith, courage, grace, hope, peace, strength, and clarity when his trouble comes. The problem-centered person goes through another door. They walk down another passageway, a, a portal that looks like fear, worry, anger, despair, vulnerability, and confusion. Now, it's not that the God-centered person avoids the temptation to worry or avoids the temptation to strive to control everything in his life. Not at all. He will have moments of fear. He will have moments where there are vain attempts to control the problem, but he is mainly managed by faith in God rather than the tragic circumstances that tempt him to take his focus off God, hoping to steer himself out of the path of suffering. So I don't want you to hear that when trouble comes that, well, I want to be a God-centered person, so I'm not going to fear, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to try to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. No, you probably will. But because you are characterized as a God-centered person, that will not be the dominating themes of your life. No, you will be more buoyed by hope and, and trust and, and shalom and, and other clarity and other wonderful characteristics of the God-centered person. Now, perhaps you are currently in a season of difficulty. How would you characterize your faith? What is the primary theme of your life? What is the heat revealing about your functional faith? Are you primarily God-centered or primarily problem-centered? If my questions were on a spectrum, where would the needle land? Not fully God-centered and not fully problem-centered, that's fine. What you really want to do is try to make as honest of an assessment as you can, because I'm asking you, because we need to examine our faith, especially in times of trouble. It's what, it's what I did as I turned to the book of Job, and I studied his stunning response to the devastation that Satan wrought in his family. If you're unfamiliar with Job's response, it would be well worth your time to read the first chapter of Job, specifically landing on verses 20, 21, and 22, the final three verses of that chapter. Job's instinct after the devastation came was to worship God Think about what I just said. 
when I shared those, when I read those words in Job chapter one, while going through the worst suffering in my life, conviction just ran all over my soul because I was not there. And I just did a podcast talking about this, and and that's why I spent two years in chapter one, because this is what I read. Here are the last three verses. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, it was only after his counselors came, his three friends, to counsel him that Job did lose focus. And it is critical to talk about how he swerved from a God-centered perspective. And I highly recommend that you reflect on his first instincts when trouble came. I just read to you his first instincts. He fell on the ground and worshiped. We can get to the part about his friends later, and we will, and that's important. But when the trouble came, he fell on the ground and worshiped. Now, if you're like me, if you are like me, then you are not like Job. And therefore, you want to learn from our our suffering friend. He worshiped God. Let that sink in for a few for a few moments. Perhaps a few moments waiting until the hope of God's grace reminds you that you can get there too. And then afterward, we can continue down Job's path where you will see how the Lord used his counselors, his awful three friends. Uh, But he used them to dig deeper into Job's practical theology. Think about this. That's a good thing. God, God can use imperfect friends to bring about good purposes. And so whether it's in the first chapter where he's worshiping God and saying all the right things, which we do need to focus on, or whether we move along and we see he's got some bad friends who are offering him pat answers and cliches, but God is even using them in their imperfect soul care to bring Job to where he needs to be. What Paul said in Philippians 1.6 is true. What I have begun, that I will complete. And I may even use some of your bad friends to help move you along. All right, so let's talk about a couple of things about Job in, in, in chapter 1 here. To some degree, Job believed in the retributive principle, which says, if you do good, the Lord will reward you, and if you do bad, the Lord will bring bad things into your life. Now, I did talk about that in, in a recent podcast where you see the first instance of this principle, the retributive uh, rep, retributive principle in Job chapter 1 verse number 5. You also see it interspersed throughout his dialogue with his three friends like Job 3.25. Job tried hard to avoid adverse outcomes in his life, even incorporating legalism as a futile method to keep bad things from happening to him. And so Job would sacrifice for his children, hoping that that would appease God. Now, Job loved the Lord, but he had an unhealthy view of God. Job lived with a low-level fear that something terrible would happen to his family, and rather than recalibrating his theology, 
He went into self-reliant mode by offering sacrifices continually. It was his suffering that brought his underdeveloped theology to the surface. You can see one of the values of, of suffering. It teases out those things that are wrong with us, especially how we think about God. And even though his friends were a pain in his backside, they were also a means of grace used by the Lord to lay bare his misapplied theological substructure. Maybe you have heard someone say, I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. Typically, this kind of statement reveals the retributive principle of doing good, receiving good, doing bad, receiving bad. Life had not gone the way the person hoped. So they tried Christianity. It's the idea of the plane going down and everybody becomes religious until the plane is out of harm's way. And then they go back living how they always wanted to live because they no longer need God. God is not an insurance agent that we can gaslight. Thinking the creature can manipulate the creator is a sin that distorts our thoughts about God. We're not thinking rightly about him. It also distorts our lives. It's not God's intent to give us every desire of our hearts. Our primary purpose and his will for us is to glorify him in all we do. And there are times when we must readjust our worldview to purify our theology to keep our motives in line with God's good aims for our lives. We cannot think we can reduce him to a self-serving formula. You'll hear it in our language. Sometimes you'll hear people say, what goes around comes around. We can be karma Christians. Don't you feel a similar tug that was in Job's soul? If I do well, the Lord will shine his face on me. If I choose to sin, the Lord will get me. And so Job was somewhat beholding to the retributive principle. And so the heat came into his life and it revealed some unexposed thoughts about God that was really poor theology. There is a law of sowing and reaping, but it operates within the boundaries of sovereignty. For example, I should expect a shock if I put a small metal object in a power outlet, or if I get caught cheating on the test, the instructor should punish me. Or if I eat, overeat regularly, and I refuse to do even the bare minimum of exercises, I shouldn't be surprised when the doctor's report comes back with bad results. Sowing and reaping are laws that work sometimes, but not always. And so we can't say that if I do good, then good will happen. If I do bad, bad will happen. That's not how it works all the time. How many times have you done something dumb and nothing terrible happened to you? When I think about the immaturity in my life, honestly, I am amazed at God's grace. I have not in every way received everything that I deserved. What went around for me did not always come around. And I praise God for this. I am not a karma Christian. My theology of suffering, my theology of sin, and my theology of the retribution principle must come under better theological scrutiny. There are three ways for us to view the hardship that comes into our lives. And I want to lay these three ways out for you. And as I lay these three things out for you, would you just take some time and say, well, this one is more like me than the other two?
it would be a good time for self-assessment. The first one is the retributive principle. If I do good, things will be okay, but if I do bad, bad things will happen to me. This worldview partially made up how Job thought about God, and it influenced his religious practices. Will you think through the retributive principle to see if there's any traces of it in your life? This exercise of thinking through, it, it will be vital as we continue to go through the book of Job, which I plan to do in future podcasts. Now, I don't want you to be on a sin hunt, but if a theological misunderstanding about God, if it affects how you think about God, then you have to deal with it. And so this first characteristic of a person, which was Job, the retributive principle, does that characterize you? The second one is presumption. You could sin and get away with it because the Lord is gracious and you do not live under the law and you don't always get what you deserve. Now, this is going to another extreme. It's a short step to take God's grace for granted, presumption, even veering to the other extreme that believes God does not care about your words or your behaviors. And so I don't believe in the retributive principle. If I do bad, I'm going to get bad. No, I, I am beholding to presumption. I can do whatever in the world I want, and God does not care. Well, that is an awful extreme. And this miscalculation, it could be worse than the law-abiding legalist that Job was. Because if you continue to justify your sin, after a while your conscience will harden, even to the point of being unaware of what you are doing, and then you are flying blind at that point with no moral radar to warn you about the path of destruction. And so Job was over here with an oversensitive moral radar, and so he lived under the retributive principle. But then you have other people who presume against God's grace, and, and they continue to justify their actions, ignoring what obedience should be in their lives, and their consciences just continue to get harder and harder. And then there is a third characteristic. Maybe you say that I, I'm not beholding to the retributive principle, and I'm not beholding to presumption. Well, maybe this is you, and honestly, I hope that it is, and that is trusting. Number three is trusting God. God has called you to suffer, and sometimes the Lord will use personal suffering to bring about good things in your life. A sound theology of suffering is a central tenet of living well in God's world. We are not the center of the universe, where we can do anything that we want to do. And God is not our divine Santa where uh, we do good, we expect him to give us good in return. Power and justice are not in our hands, giving us the prerogative to wield them according to what we want at any given moment. Our works do matter, but not in a way that will manipulate sovereign God. Our mantra is to trust and obey while not reducing God to a formula that is based on our works. And I mentioned two formulas. One is I do good, God will do good. And the other, I can do what I want to, and it does not matter. We can't reduce God to a formula, but we trust and obey because God is good. Not only is he good, he is not like us at all. Meeting all of our desires and giving us everything that we want is not at the top of God's to-do list. 
We do not serve a manipulatable God. And again, this is what Job was doing, even though I think it was probably unwitting in his psyche that he did not realize that this is what he's doing in such an overt way of realizing such a thing. But I think at some level he did know because that's what he said. He believed that he is, if he sacrificed, things would go well for him. Well, God meeting all of our wishes is not the top of his to-do list. We do not serve a manipulatable God. And I trust that causes you to praise him. Think about this. To get every desire met by the Lord is as unwise as it is unbiblical. Imagine a parent providing everything a child ever wanted. No loving parent would ever parent that way. Actually, I'm describing Satan, not Christ. Satan will give you everything that you ever wanted, only to destroy you. The Lord is mysterious. He is not like us. Therefore, we must understand him according to who he is, not who we want him to be or who we think he is. And we really have to understand him for who he is, especially during our darkest trials. And so I want to share three critical things to know when life does not make sense. And I hope that these ideas will become solid planks on your theology of suffering. And if you're going through a time of suffering, I trust these three things will benefit you. And if you're helping someone, if you are helping someone who is going through a very hard time, I trust these th three things will, will bring a little bit of clarity as they progress down this pathway of suffering. Number one, there are no pat answers. God's answers will always be somewhat different from what others will tell you. Do you remember Job's counselors? Their perspective and God's perspective were not the same. Because God thinks differently from us, we want to steer away from cliche-type or formulaic answers when someone is going through suffering. Clichés are tempting when the crisis comes, but they are rarely helpful. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that you don't say God's grace is sufficient or we know all things work together for good. No, those are wonderful things to say, but we also have to move beyond the Scripture's exact language and do the hard work of customizing our care for the unique soul sitting in front of us because God is doing a unique wor a work in that person sitting in front of us. You see, the purpose of the Bible is to provide a foundation for doing soul care. And so we don't want to twist the words of God and make them just say anything, but we want to build upon the words of God as we customize soul care for the person that is in front of us. And so we want to know, we have to know what God's word says, but we just don't quote it parrot-like because this person needs customized care. That is the heart of counseling. A counselor never sits in a counseling office and just quotes Scripture ad infinitum. No, they provide Scripture, and then they apply Scripture. And so we want to do that because there are no pat answers. One size fits all. And so we want to do the hard work of digging into the foundation of God's Word and then bringing out those applicable points to the person who is in front of us. The second thing when life does not make sense is that there is an element of mystery to it. 
There are times when there just aren't any answers at all. When God does not act like we think he should, it just means he is working in a way that we do not yet understand. Our faith should be in the Lord, not in knowing all the answers. God-centered faith strengthens us, especially when life does not make sense. Futile attempts to tease the answers for how we want things to go, it will only weaken our trust in God, tempting us to yield to self-reliant contrivances as we construct pathways that align with our own dreams. Job was looking for a pat answer, and he figured out what the pat answer was. He did not want to live in the divine mystery of not knowing the answers, and so he swerved off the pathway into self-reliance, and he constructed a theological worldview that catered to his own dreams and wishes, and so he sacrificed to his children continually. God came in and just destroyed his world, and then there was Job, like, there are no answers for this, and there is an element of mystery in this, and we have to be okay with both of those things. We can't always know the answers, and there is an element of mystery in the suffering that we are going through. It's God's goodness that must control our thoughts, especially when we don't understand what is happening. How comfortable are you with mystery? Perhaps you can remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses is reminding us that there are some things that belong to God and there are other things that belong to us. Our finitude will always keep us on the short end of the knowledge stick. We can't provide pat answers, and we will not be able to solve all the mysteries in our lives, and we have to come to a place of comfortableness in those two things. The third thing, when life does not make sense, is God is greater. Humans like to give pat answers, and humans like to solve the mysteries in their lives. These attempts to divine the divine have a hollow ring compared to his transcendent purposes. It's hard to wrap our minds around why people die of debilitating diseases through no fault of their own, or why good things happen to bad people and awful things happen to those who are trying to live for God. We live in a world that is out of control, a truth that we must come to terms with if we want to maintain our sanity. We cannot make things always go according to our plans in a fallen world. Job couldn't. He sacrificed on behalf of his sons continually, and Satan blew his world to smithereens while acting under the Lord's authority. But here is the transcendent truth. God is greater than these things. If you believe that God is greater, then you have a way of making sense of life in our turned upside down world. Now, perhaps these three conclusions will help settle your soul as I wrap up here. As the trouble comes in an unfair world, here are three things that I want you to consider. God does permit bad things to happen to people, whether they are good people or bad people or however, you, however way you want to categorize those people. God does permit bad things to happen to them. Number two, God is in control of all things. Nothing can happen to you that is outside of God's control. 
And then number three, God is always working for your good and for his glory. Three things to know when life does not make sense. There are no pat answers. Number two, there is an element of mystery in what is happening to us. And then number three, God is greater than all these things that are going on in our lives, and he is working for your good, for the benefit of others, and for his magnificent fame. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 